Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. As you know, this show is a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. And we actually have some very exciting Agora-related news if you live on the East Coast of the United States. We are happy to announce Agora Day will be taking place Saturday, June 29th, 2019, from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. in New York, New York. This is very exciting, and not only because it gives me an excuse to go to New York, and I haven't been there in a couple years, and the city is just great. But in addition to that, we're going to get David Crowther out this time, which is very exciting, in addition to Royfield Brown and a bunch of uh, other people who are more locally situated. So check for details. Royfield and I are going to be doing a panel discussion, probably with a few other people, on maps and history and all the some of the methodological stuff I discussed a few episodes back, and then Royfield has this uh, very deep aesthetic love of maps. So it's going to be a good time great reason to come to the city uh, and see some of your favorite podcasters. So I encourage you all, we don't have all the details yet, but save the date, June 29th, and check on the Facebook page, check all the social medias for me and the Agora people, and, and we'll keep you uh, up to date when we have the details. So, in addition to our more international commitments, it is also important for us to recognize the domestic partners that have so contributed to the advancement of the realm. This week, we have one donor and a number of patrons who are worthy of honor and praise. The donor is Admiral Brittany, the somewhat alarming pirate queen, who has increased her donation and has, as a result, been given new lands over which she shall hold sway. And therefore, she shall now be known far and wide as Admiral Brittany, the somewhat alarming pirate queen of Sweetwater Draw. Chiron's service to the kingdom shall also be recognized, and they shall now be known as Sergeant Chiron, the scuffle-hoe of the kingdom. Charles shall be equally recognized, and shall be known henceforward as Prince Bishop Charles, apostle to the meerkats. Robert's grand services to all and sundry shall be recognized in his title, which shall now be Supreme Viceroy Robert the Poodle. For his valiant efforts, Bill shall be known henceforward as Earl Bill the Calcium Tooth. And finally, we have Vincent, whose nearly unbelievable acts of heroism and gallantry, and not to mention a, a very large amount of personal danger, have earned him admission into the Guild of Merchant Adventurers. And therefore, he shall be known from henceforward as Intern Vincent of the Guild of Merchant Adventurers. Have fun delivering all that coffee there, Vincent. Good on you. 
If you wish to join Vincent and the others in the serried ranks of our donors or patrons, please head to the website and check out the store page where you'll find a way to donate securely via PayPal or donate uh, regularly a small monthly amount via Patreon. Uh, Both are heavily appreciated and come with benefits at some point. I also encourage you to check out our store page or give us a uh, rating and review on iTunes or Apple Podcast and or whatever uh, podcatcher you happen to prefer. Thank you so much for your time and please enjoy the show. The following is read by Lee Accomando of the Viking Age podcast. The Vikings, in fact, were pirates. And piracy is the first stage of commerce. Quote from Economic and Social History of Medieval Europe by Henri Piren. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the story of how Europe got modern. This is episode 52, The Economy Part 3, Recovery of a Kind. Over the last two episodes, we delved into the hows and whys of the economic collapse of Europe during and following the fall of the Roman Empire. On a macroeconomic level, we saw how deeply connected the Roman economy was to the Roman state in the form of heavily subsidized transportation infrastructures. Thus, no matter what other considerations might have existed, the fall of the empire would have implied a huge contraction in the economy of the Western Empire. This process took a long time, and likely began long before the empire's fall. But by the time the borders of the Middle Ages began to stabilize in the late 700s or so, things had become very dire indeed. Much of the northern shore of the Mediterranean had been hollowed out demographically by war and illness, and evidence of economic activity is fairly minimal. We ended last time with a short discussion of the impact of active military frontiers on bringing the medieval economy to its lowest ebb. We saw how evidence gleaned from pottery shows that the different Merovingian kingdoms had sort of cut each other off from trade, creating tiny economic zones that seriously restricted long-distance trade. In a similar vein, we discussed how the short-lived Burgundian kingdom had served to sever the important Rhone trade route uh, in a similar way. But as we also began to discuss last time, this vision of macroeconomic collapse papers over some contradictory evidence. The new manor system that would come to define the Middle Ages had arisen out of the turmoil of this period and proved to be something of an economic dynamo that was well-suited to the time and place. Noble families across the former Roman world began assembling and consolidating dispersed land holdings to allow them to effectively participate in trade. Unless restricted by a political frontier, these families would spread their economic routes far and wide across the countryside. And despite the fact that the old Roman trading routes had declined seriously, we saw last time that sea trading did remain. Coastal trampers plied their trade all around Italy and out of Constantinople. The Amber Road was probably already being traveled, and the entire northern arc from the British Isles through the North and Baltic seas and down the Volga River system was alive with travelers and traders. So today we will be examining the process by which trade fully revived across Europe. To understand this process, we need to know what was being traded, by whom, and how. What happened in the 800s that allowed for such a different trading landscape than in the 700s? 
In answering these questions, we must, to some extent, work backwards. We have very limited evidence of trade in the 6 and 700s, uh, except that we know it was happening to some extent. But by the 800s and 900s, evidence of trade is much stronger, and what we find is highly illuminating. Hopefully the trend lines that we can discern from this later period can help us all understand the likely origins of these changes. Does that make sense? All right. To me, the question of what was being traded is key, so let's begin there. In popular history books, the narrative that is often presented throughout Western history is one where all the cool stuff is in the East up until the Industrial Revolution. The mystical East had spices and silks, Africa had exotic animals and gold, and Europe was always shown as having nothing really of value, and thus was constantly at risk of having all its money sucked away to China. And yet somehow Europe just kept buying spices and silk from the time of the Roman Empire until the Industrial Revolution. Sure, these were luxury items, but this narrative obviously has some basic flaws in its understanding of economics. If trade was so completely one-sided, this trade could never have occurred, at least for as long as it did. And so it is. During the Roman Empire, the Romans were hardly sending all their bullion off to the Sassanids and coming back with just some measly spices and silks. The Romans produced a number of products that were valued in the East, including glassware and textiles. The Romans didn't see these items as valuable because, of course, they made them. But, you know, out in Indonesia, on that one island where they could actually grow cloves at the time? Well, let me assure you that cloves were not exactly going for their weight in gold, and fancy glass cups were considered pretty cool. Familiarity breeds contempt, but let's not mistake that for economic reality. It's also worth saying that the luxury market is a horrible indicator of economic activity. Low-weight, high-value items may make a handful of people rich, but only if there's a much larger group of rich people willing to fork over resources to get them. As I've indicated previously, I think, it is high-weight, low-value consumer goods that actually tell us something about economic health. Now, these things can be hard to track, but pottery is often a good stand-in for these markets in pre-modern times, and so we actually already know uh, about the status of some of these key parts of the trade system from the last episode. Mostly, these consumer goods were stuck in very local regions, not really moving across the Alps, and not really moving across military frontiers. It seems likely to me that they were moving north instead, uh, where there was an increasingly prosperous group of traders working on the North Sea and in the Baltic that happened to live in places that were not particularly fertile. We even have a little bit of documentary evidence that Nordic traders, even this early, were trading agricultural products to the Sami in the far north in exchange for things like uh, tusks and things like that. Given the lack of productivity of the Nordic countries in general, I would wager that at least some of the agricultural produce that was being traded to the north came from further south. In exchange for the probable agricultural produce of the south, the Nordic traders got all the things that we talked about in our walking tour episode when we dealt with the Nordic countries. They got animal hides, marine mammal ivory, lumber, pitch, tar, amber, ropes, some silver, and a whole host of other forest goods. In the early Middle Ages, many of these same goods were being produced in mainland Europe as well, along with woven textiles and manufactured products like weapons and armor. In fact, and at least in this period, Frankish swords were considered the finest in the world, as far east as the Caspian Sea. They also produced things like heavy plows and millstones, which had definite, if moderate, value. The millstones, at least, were useful as ballast for ships trading in the south. All of these goods had value, and many were actually sought out in the more conventionally developed economies of the Eastern Roman Empire and the Caliphate. 
In the Northern Arc uh, economic region, many of the lighter of these items were definitely being traded to the east. You know, maybe not millstones, but ropes and hides and things like that. And yet these goods, with the exception of the swords, were not valuable enough to justify passing through the hands of all the middlemen needed for movement in the early part of this era. So how did these long-distance trade movements begin? Surely at no point were boatloads of just swords moving south along the Volga. As added disincentives, I just want to remind you all about the issue of political and especially military boundaries. As we saw last time, Merovingian France was economically very active on a local basis, but the political entity had fallen apart, and this restricted economic activity to these tiny kingdoms. In the south, the issue was on a much grander scale. The zone between the Eastern Roman Empire and the Caliphate established an economic dead zone that stretched from the Black Sea in the north, along the Taurus Mountains in Asia Minor, and then out into the Mediterranean, along the islands of the Aegean, and all the way out to Sicily. This was such an economic dead zone that it even impacted biology. During the 800s, for example, the Caliphate was hit by a bad outbreak of the bubonic plague. Despite sharing an extended land border, the Eastern Roman Empire did not come down with the plague from that direction. Rather, it wasn't until the plague had spread down into Egypt and then out west along the northern coast of Africa that the infection somehow managed to make its way around to Sicily. And then from Sicily, it moved back through Italy and then to Greece and the Aegean Islands and then to Asia Minor. Incidentally, Europe was not hit by this outbreak of plague at all, which may indicate how disconnected it was from the trade system. In any case, this point tells us two further things. First, the Eastern Roman Empire was really serious about that trade ban. The plague had to outflank it to defeat the blockade. On the other hand, the plague did outflank it, out at the far end of Roman control, in the islands of the Western Mediterranean. Interesting. But we'll come back to that. The question we're dealing with now is how, despite all these obstacles, did trade eventually revive? What was the product that caused this revival, and how did that happen? To begin to answer these critical questions, I'm going to turn to a fairly long quote from Michael McCormick. I'm doing this for two reasons. First, his reading is very funny and insightful. Second, I can't find a copy of the primary source online, so I work with what I got. In any case, this is the story of two modest traders from Venice who had an adventure in Egypt that resulted in the duo dabbling in a little bit of body snatching. Like you do. It happens to be the oldest known written source in Venetian history. One of the two traders, Bonus of Malamoco, eventually wrote down his adventures. Depending on the version of the Latin you choose to go with, Bonus can also be rendered as Buono, uh, as it would be in sort of modernish Italian. But Michael McCormick went with the original reading in classical Latin. So that's what I'm going with here. Here goes. Bonus comes to us courtesy of the oldest historical writing to survive from Venice, the translation of the Relics of St. Mark. His home was Malamocco, the old seat of the Venetian duchy, south of the new one at the Rialto. Bonus held the rank of tribune, a dignity which looked more lustrous in the Byzantine provinces than in the capital. At Venice, in fact, tribunes ranked next to the duke, or doge, theoretically. Two were named each year. Tribune Bonus was one of the most noble of the merchants who sailed out of the Adriatic in a convoy of ten Venetian ships loaded with unspecified goods. Supposedly, the Venetians had no intention of violating the Byzantine emperor's embargo on trade with the Muslim world, but even the emperor yielded to God. By an amazing coincidence, attributable only to divine intervention, the freight-laden ships were on a blue-water course, of all things, when a terrible storm overtook them. It just happened to propel them into Alexandria, one of the caliphate's greatest trading cities. 
There, the Venetians labored mightily to make some money by the sweat of their brow, selling whatever they had transported and buying up other products. Between deals, they visited the famous shrine of St. Mark, which was near the port, to ask his intercession for their numerous sins, presumably including embargo-breaking. Bonus, in particular, spent much time there. This was not surprising, since one of the Sacristians, the Greek priest Theodore, was his spiritual brother. Bonus was the godfather of one of the Sacristians' children. Such spiritual kingship was a weighty affair in early medieval society, so we can surmise that this was not the first time the men had met. Other storms, presumably, had forced the Venetian merchants to dock in Alexandria in previous years. The rest of the story is well known. The Sacristians were worried that the Arab governor's ongoing campaign to collect fine marble spolia might desecrate the basilica. Bonus suggested that they steal the relics of St. Mark. The Sacristians could accompany him back to Venice, where they would all live happily ever after. The thought both intrigued and frightened the relic keepers. Weren't they going to wind up as slaves? Quote, if we give you the body and stayed behind, the people would kill us. But if we went up into your ship, in fact, we would be led away just like slaves to a land we had never seen, end quote. Whether or not they actually used such words, the Venetian hagiography spoke with verisimilitude. In the end, Bonus's suasions and a Muslim flogging changed their minds. The body was stolen and concealed in a basket. The crafty Venetians disguised the ap apostolic remains as groceries for the return voyage. They covered the relic with cabbage leaves, and, on top of that, they put pork. When the merchants reached the checkpoint, the Muslim inspectors peeked inside, but were disgusted by the pork and let them pass. They lowered the baskets into their small boat and rowed out to the ship, where they hid the treasure in the sails. When it came time to weigh anchor, Theodore got cold feet and stayed on the shore, even though his possessions had already been loaded with Staurakius, an Alexandrian monk and sacristian who was in on the plot. To make a long story short, the Venetians were returned home in triumph, and Theodore and his family took a ship for Venice the following year, where Staurakius had already been appointed to the Doge's chapel. End quote. Now, I know some people have trouble with sarcasm, so let me summarize all of that really quick. Two wealthy Venetian merchants, including one of the top three officials in a city that swore allegiance to the Eastern Roman Empire, sailed a fleet loaded with trade goods to Alexandria, a city at war with the empire and where it was illegal for them to trade. They claimed later that they had been pushed there by a storm. Once there, they just happened to have a wide variety of trade contacts, including being the godbrother of one of the priests of St. Mark. To be clear, in the Middle Ages, being someone's god-relative was considered to be an actual blood tie in the eye of the law, so the idea that they were just blown there accidentally is suspect, to say the least. In any case, the two merchants and the two priests overseeing the relics of St. Mark then basically stole the relics, by which I mean a body, and took them to Venice. Except that one of the priests then got cold feet because he felt that getting onto a Venetian ship at all would be akin to selling himself into slavery. Oh, and despite that whole ban on trade, the priests did eventually find another ship to Venice. There were a lot of storms, I suppose. A few background points. Venice was founded during the darkest days of the collapse of the empire, and records are pretty scanty, but the official foundation of the city as a city can be dated to 697. The Episcopal seat that would be located in Venice wasn't created until 775. Bonus and his companions were sailing in 828. This is, as I said, the oldest written document that survives from Venice. 
So what the story tells us is that only a little bit more than a hundred years after the city was founded, at a time when most of Italy was still engaged in coastal tramping and trying not to die of leprosy, Venice was sending fleets of smugglers to Alexandria, where they had extensive and intimate trade contacts, but where they were so deeply associated with slave trading that the kinsmen of one of the leaders of this venture didn't trust him enough to come along. In other words, the Venetians are just hilariously awful. They can't even keep their own story straight in a tale that they wrote celebrating their own actions. Just in this one story, they are pretty obviously liars, thieves, smugglers, and slave traders. Hats off to Venice, you jerks. Second, and more pertinent, the idea that there was a hard break in trading between the Christian world and the Muslim world is not true in the way Henri Perrin described it. While it's true that the Eastern Roman Empire cut off trade, and that this served to cut off much of the Christian world due to geography and the nature of sailing at the time, the Muslims of North Africa seem to have had no problem at all with trading with Christians. If you were willing to cross the Mediterranean directly and forego the coastal tramping mode of commerce, there were not any real barriers to trade on the southern shore of the Mediterranean. This view of trade between the Muslim and Christian world is backed up in the western Mediterranean basin, where Amalfi was making their brief appearance on the world stage. Uh, again, some context. Amalfi is a cluster of villages precariously perched midway up a cliff in the area of Naples, and as we discussed in the walking tour, the cities of this area continued to at least pay lip service to being loyal citizens of the Eastern Roman Empire, just like Venice. In their case, this was reinforced by proximity to Sicily. As we've mentioned, Sicily was at the end of a crucial shipping route to Constantinople, and thus it served as the key hub to the Eastern Roman Empire's Western communication system. You guys following this? Uh, let me put it this way. Sicily was the end of a key shipping route to Constantinople, and had enough resources domestically to act as a local base for the empire. Before the Arab conquests, this portion of the empire had included Italy, the Balearic Islands, Sardinia, Corsica, small outposts in Spain, and of course North Africa. North Africa was the anchor to this whole system. That was the really important part. It had its own mint and was home to a large quantity of agricultural and industrial production. Sicily was just a way station. But then the Arab conquests happened, and these key provinces in North Africa and the less key outposts in Spain were lost. The Muslim forces in Spain fairly quickly escaped from direct control of the Caliphate, and for our purposes I will be referring to the Spanish Muslims as Saracens. In any case, one group of these Saracens seized the Balearic Islands and took up a life of piracy. In the wake of these losses, Eastern Roman operations from North Africa moved to Sardinia for a while. Ultimately, minting operations ceased, but Sardinia retained a lot of administrative importance, despite the fact that Sicily was much more central to these operations. Constantinople ultimately had bigger issues to worry about, and despite some brief bursts of energy, inertia seems to have taken hold of the Eastern Roman administrative system in the region. This neglect can be seen in numerous anecdotes that come down to us from this era. I already mentioned how it was via Sicily that the bubonic plague entered the empire, indicating that the trade with Tunis was occurring despite the imperial ban, even at this important base. We also hear numerous grim stories about the practices of the Eastern Roman navy. You see, as Saracen pirate attacks increased, the Eastern Roman navy had lots of opportunities to capture Saracen pirate ships. When they did, it was apparently common practice for them to sell their prizes at the imperial market in Sardinia, rather than returning the booty to its Christian Roman subjects. Importantly, this booty often included the Christian Roman subjects themselves, who had been taken captive as slaves. 
So to make that clear, the Eastern Roman Navy was capturing Saracen pirates and taking the Christian Roman slaves that those pirates had held and just selling them. So let's turn our focus back on Amalfi. The cities of the Naples region were, as we have seen, tied into a wider network of communications and trade due to their loyalty to the empire. But this network had become unresponsive and corrupt. The exact circumstances are unclear, but at some point the villagers of Amalfi began taking advantage of the trading possibilities afforded by their imperial loyalty. The Amalfians were able to trade freely and easily at imperial ports in their area, while also taking advantage of lax imperial oversight to turn around and trade those goods in Tunisia. Can you see where this is going? We don't know for sure that it was the merchants of Amalfi in particular, but fairly quickly we hear of Christian merchants buying up the imperial war booty in Sardinia and selling it on to North Africa. Again, we don't know for sure that it was the Amalfians engaged in this specific trade, but they are the first city of southern Italy to be mentioned as growing in economic and political power during this period, the same period when this trade was happening. At the same time, the political context of this entire region was becoming chaotic. Despite brief appearances by the Franks, southern Italy was becoming a free-for-all, with various Lombard and semi-Frankish princes, semi-independent city-states, and eastern Roman outposts all engaged in a struggle for dominance. At the same time, the political situation in North Africa was also descending into chaos, as political control from the east failed, and local strongmen began carving out local power bases. The Western Mediterranean rapidly became a war zone, with no really strong powers involved and a dizzying number of weak ones vying for minor advantages. This is the kind of situation that historians traditionally viewed as bad for the economy. And to be fair, we saw that political chaos in the Merovingian kingdoms had been very bad for the economy there. But for reasons we will go into in a moment, things turned out very different in the Western Mediterranean. Rather than shutting down trade, this political chaos turned into an economic feeding frenzy. Christian cities would ally with Saracen raiding parties to help scout out opportunities for plunder amongst the city's Christian rivals in return for a cut. Other Christian merchants would buy up the goods from the Saracen raiding parties on the shore and sell them on directly in North Africa. Courts in the Islamic cities of North Africa established rules about whether or not it was acceptable to attack the ships of a Christian you'd just traded with, even in their home waters. It wasn't, by the way, but Saracen pirates from other ports were under no restrictions. If the Eastern Roman navy happened to capture a pirate ship, these noble stewards of law and order would probably sell all the Christian slaves in the cargo hold on to North Africa anyway. It was pure chaos. And in this chaos, there were two things that are very clear. First, a lot of people were getting very rich. This is when Amalfi began fielding a navy that made even the Romans afraid. It was also at this time that Arab coins start showing up all over Italy in huge quantities. And the second thing? Well, it's clear that the main item of value that was being sought was not gold or swords or silks or millstones or tapestries. It was human beings. There are a number of reasons for this situation beyond the local chaos. In terms of the broader economy, the Eastern Roman Empire and the Caliphate had retained much of the Roman economic system, so agricultural slavery was still very important to the economic systems in a way which was increasingly not true in Europe. And these economic systems were very wealthy because they hadn't suffered through the kind of chaos that Europe had. But another major issue was that the Caliphate was in the midst of a major agricultural revolution. New techniques and technologies, combined with a huge new trading sphere opened up by the Arab conquests, 
led to a major increase in productivity and a new demand for labor. This demand was compounded when that outbreak of bubonic plague we mentioned earlier ravaged the caliphate and the empire in the 800s, but mostly left mainland Europe alone. And then finally, that hard military frontier between the Eastern Roman Empire and the Caliphate had settled into a stalemate along the Taurus Mountains, which made it harder for the Arab world to acquire slaves directly from that direction. Uh, without going into too much detail, because this is far outside our scope, the Caliphate also ran into natural borders in pretty much every other direction as well. The result was a classic case of demand outstripping local supply, leading to a need for imports, with a huge price discrepancy between the import region and the export region. Evidence from scattered mentions in written sources allows McCormick to at least make a reasonable case that the cost of a slave purchased in Europe was significantly less than in the Eastern Roman Empire or in the Arab Caliphate, even when shipping costs were factored in. In turn, the price in the Eastern Roman Empire was less than in the Caliphate, but only by a little bit. So there was a huge amount of money to be made from selling slaves to the Eastern Roman Empire, but even more from selling them to the Caliphate. Where did these slaves come from? Surely southern Italy and the islands were not populous enough to supply such a large region. Well, that question brings us back to Venice, the northern arc, and the issue of supply. As we've discussed before in this show, a person could be historically enslaved as a result of birth status, as a result of debt, or as a punishment for a crime. But by far the most efficient method for gathering slaves was the capture of them in warfare. As we just discussed, the Arab and Eastern Roman military frontiers had become very static, which wasn't great for capturing slaves. The Western Mediterranean happened to be extremely dynamic at this time, but it was a small area and thus a small source of supply capable of satisfying the important African market, but not the caliphate as a whole. Procuring human misery on that scale required truly monumental military success, which brings us back to the Franks. Between the 400s and the 700s, warfare was undoubtedly endemic in Europe. Wars between the Germanic kings was ongoing, but as we discussed in terms of pottery evidence, the economic spheres of this era in mainland Europe were small. The exception was probably in the British Isles and the Frankish kingdoms along the English Channel. These areas were connected to the northern trading arc. The kingdoms in these areas grew very wealthy, despite endemic warfare, which allowed them to mint their own coins. It's now clear that amongst their more valuable exports were human beings. Records state pretty directly that the new cities in Ireland and western England were founded as slave-trading entrepots. This trade may have begun earlier, when the Merovingians were available as local customers. Certainly, this is, would explain why Kent was one of the first areas to develop economically. But by the 700s and 800s, the Merovingian kingdom had broken up. At around the same time, the Avars had lodged themselves on the Pannonian Plain in modern Hungary, which threatened to close down the Amber Road. So now the Northern Ark came into itself for the first time because it was one of the only ways to transport goods. And the archaeologists at this time begin to find hordes of slave chains in the Nordic countries and along the Volga River trade system. Just as there used to be depots of this kind of equipment in the Merovingian kingdom, back when uh, they still had a functioning local Roman economy and they were importing slaves, now that the direction of that trade seems to have reversed. Exports were moving north and east now, ultimately going to the Caspian outposts of the Caliphate. Podcast footnote. It is in this context in particular that the testimony of Ibn Karadabe about the Radonite traders becomes the most contentious in the modern context. 
We aren't just talking about a international conspiracy of rich Jews, you understand, but an international conspiracy of rich Jews that was making their money off of the slave trade. There is really no way to pretend that this was in any way okay, except to direct everything, everyone to everything I said about this source in the last episode. For his part, Ibn Karatabe was not blaming the Jews for being slave traders. Slavery was part of how he assumed the world worked. He was just stating that Jewish traders existed and that amongst their wares were slaves, which was very valuable to the caliphate. And to reiterate from last time, a reading of other sources remind us that the Jews were not the only people engaged in this trade, and that contrary to Ibn Karatabe's testimony, these Jewish merchants were probably not organized as a tribe or international conspiracy. In fact, McCormick suggests that there is evidence that different parts of the Jewish cultural world were in some way not fully in concert with each other. It seems that the Jews of Spain, for example, were in regular correspondence with rabbis in the Levant to answer questions that came up, while the Jews in Paris preferred to turn to the rabbis of Baghdad to resolve their disputes. Many years later, when Jews would be forced to cross from Spain into France, uh, and McCormick doesn't talk about this, but the result of this was a very shameful episode of intraconfessional conflict in southern France um, when the Spanish Levantine-aligned Jews and the French Baghdadi-aligned Jews uh, came into conflict over some doctrinal points. I'm oversimplifying this uh, extensively and probably drawing some connections that a better, wiser historian wouldn't, but ultimately it ended up with the local Jews asking the fairly gleeful Christian authorities to condemn the Spanish Jews as heretics. So there's no, you know, assumed unity within this community. In any case, the key takeaway from all this remains. While it is worth noting that the category of international long-distance slave traders included a good number of Jews, the importance of the testimony of Ibn Karatabe does not lie there. The importance really lies in the evidence that such long-distance trading was occurring, and helping to deepen understanding of the nature of these trade contacts, namely that they included slaves. End podcast footnote. So... All through the period between 400 and 700, the Northern Ark was slowly developing and increasingly prospering. From 700 to 800, it became extremely important. But then the political geography of Europe changed, and that change was named Charlemagne. Charlemagne's father and grandfather had eliminated the political boundaries between the Merovingian successor kingdoms. Charlemagne consolidated that situation establishing a comparatively huge free trade zone, and then systematically attacking and eliminating uh, any powerful neighbors. Amongst his achievements was destroying the Avars, thus definitively opening up the Amber Road. And then he also conquered the Lombards, thus opening up the Alpine passes into Italy, firmly and for sure. And then, oh yeah, these conquests also resulted in putting untold thousands of human beings into slavery. The Carolingian Empire quickly developed the three major external trade routes we have already discussed. The northern arc went into overdrive, despite increasing pressure from the Pechnegs around Kiev. The Amber Road, which was probably already being used beforehand, really opened up at this point. Arab coins flooded in along this route, particularly in areas near border crossings into the Frankish Empire. Interestingly, we don't have many Arab coins from inside the empire, but these two facts are actually related. Amongst his many laws on trade regulation, Charlemagne had required that all foreign coins be confiscated at the border and restruck as Frankish coins. As a result, all the coin finds from within the borders of the empire have Frankish faces on them. 
On the other hand, a merchant who wanted some local currency for the return journey was incentivized to bury some of their wealth before they crossed into Frankish territory, and not all of these deposits were exhumed later. The result is super convenient for historians and archaeologists trying to trace out the Amber Road trading routes, because many merchants waited until they got right up to the border crossing to make their deposits. This was maybe not as great for the merchants in question, I suppose, but then they were probably slave traders, so who cares? The other big route that began to flourish at this time was the Rhine. There are some interesting documents that discuss how trade would function on the Rhine. One of the most telling has a merchant describing his process where he sailed down the river with various wares, sold them at the mouth of the Rhine, and then bought up a different set of wares, loaded up his boat, and then that boat was towed upstream by teams of slaves to the, to the headwaters of the river. Then these wares were sold, and the merchant repeated the process. Whether the slaves were sold at the top of the river was not specified, but what is clear is that the new alpine crossings were opened up at around this time, and they connected the headwaters of the Rhine over into the Po Valley. Many of these crossings had not been in existence during Roman times, as the Romans preferred to trade via the Rhone River system, but now they provided a vital link between northern Europe and southern Europe. Although we have no direct evidence of them, slaves make sense as a key commodity that might have been traded using these routes, due to their unique ability to carry themselves over mountains. What is clear is that all of a sudden, supply from the Frankish Empire had several routes by which it could connect with demand in the Caliphate and the Eastern Roman Empire. The Carolingian Empire's constant warfare against the Slavs brought in so many slaves that it affected the languages of Europe etymologically. It was in this period that the word slave replaced previous words like servus or captivi to refer to slaves. And now that all three trade routes were open, it was possible for these thousands of slaves being captured by Charlemagne from Western Europe to be moved to the Eastern Roman Empire and the Caliphate, even if it wasn't particularly convenient given the state of the infrastructure. Regardless of the state of the roads and the need for portage, slaves had the advantage as a commodity of being able to assist in their own transportation the goods can walk for themselves. It is also very clear that the Venetians were up to their eyeballs in this. Their role in the slave trade, only hinted at in Bonus's tale, is documented many times clearly in many different records during this period. Most notably, the Pope Valentine specifically banned the Venetians for setting up a slave market where they were buying up Christian slaves for this trade. Many popes after Valentine repeated this legal restriction, as did the Venetian treaty with the Frankish Empire. To be clear, the ban was not on selling slaves to the Arabs, that was just good business. Slavery was in the Bible, after all. The problem was selling Christian slaves to the Arabs, who would presumably encourage the, them to change their belief structure and thus burn in hell forever. Unfortunately for the efforts of the Frankish emperors and the Roman popes, the large number of pagan slaves coming down from the Alps gave the Venetians ample plausible deniability in their trade, and over time, these efforts at banning uh, the Christian slave trade became ever more feeble and ultimately ceased. So why was Venice so heavily involved in this trade? Well, geography probably had most of what to do with it. Given their situation on a series of malaria-infested sandbars, the Venetians had little alternative to making trade work for them. This may have made them a bit more adventurous than their neighbors. More broadly, however, the roads that crossed the Alps from the Rhine almost all ultimately follow the Po River down to the Adriatic, Venice's home base. And the Amber Road, which was so flush with Arab and Eastern Roman coins, also terminates near Venice at the top of the Adriatic Sea. 
Given all the testimony and archaeological evidence, it seems likely that the Venetians had pioneered a new trade route, buying up slaves as they came down from the mountains and then shipping them down the Adriatic and across to Egypt using blue water sailing methods, rather than coastal tramping. Podcast footnote. On a less morally upsetting note, the Venetian trade with Egypt implies that, unlike many of their contemporaries, the Venetians had become accustomed to sailing in deep water, out of the sight of land. As the Venetians began having success with this sailing method, others began replicating their techniques. McCormick's analysis of travel times shows that, over the course of the 800s and 900s, the time required to move a given distance halved. Given that no new technological advances can explain that increase in speed, it seems likely that the sailors had begun sailing at night, which effectively doubles the number of hours that travel is occurring during a given day, and thus halving the travel time. To do this safely, it's likely that the sailors were working in deep water, where it was less likely that they would run into something in the dark. As a result, the Venetians managed to double the productivity of their trading fleets with this one weird trick. And that's, you know, pretty cool. Of course, they were still trading people, so let's not give them too much credit. End podcast footnote. As was the case in Venice, so it came to be in every major trading center across Europe. As we mentioned, Amalfi and the cities of the Neapolitan region got in on this game soon enough, eventually dividing the Mediterranean into the east, which Venice dominated, and the west, which the other Italian city-states competed to work in. The scramble for slaves soon took on a desperate character in the western Mediterranean, as the Christian merchants collaborated with Saracen raiders to round up citizens of neighboring regions for sale in North Africa. The Venetians don't seem to have gotten their hands dirty in quite that way, always staying scrupulously within the letter of the law, so long as the Eastern Roman Empire continued to look the other way on their human smuggling operations. Of course, the dominion of the Adriatic by their Venetian allies had a lot of benefits for the Eastern Romans, so they were only too happy to indulge in this little eccentricity. All the same, this increasingly frantic scramble to find slaves by any means necessary in the western Mediterranean was mirrored by increasing volumes of trade in the Adriatic over time. Given the source of their goods, it puts the political economy of the Frankish Empire into a new and stark context, and the fall of that empire into a starker context still. Like all military machines, the Carolingian Empire was able to sustain a period of rapid growth by paying their soldiers with plunder. The promise of more plunder brought more soldiers the next year, which made it easier to push the borders out and acquire yet more plunder. Charlemagne was notorious for being constantly in the saddle, engaging in at least one campaign per year in person. While this is presented in the Chronicles as a noble series of defensive wars, it seems likely to me that the Empire needed the wars to hold itself together. The loyalty of the entire political and military structure of the Empire was based on Charlemagne distributing gifts to his men, and many historians have commented on the fact that when the Empire's expansion slowed, the Empire broke apart. But this discussion of slavery brings into question just what the goods were that were being distributed. For the nobility, land was definitely sought. But we also have records of long columns of merchants following around Carolingian armies. Given the low level of economic development in many of the regions that Charlemagne conquered, it seems likely that the economic bonanza these merchants were seeking to cash in on was human in nature. They would bring the army food and weapons and lead off prisoners of war in return. The proceeds are probably what kept the rank-and-file soldiers on the line and in armor. This puts the entire conquest of the Saxons into a very stark light indeed. The fact that a huge number of Saxons were enslaved is no secret in the records, but the strange military tactics of the Franks have often raised eyebrows amongst historians. 
in brief, Charlemagne would generally roll into an area, plunder, set up a small garrison, and withdraw. The garrison would be wiped out during the winter, and Charlemagne would invade in the spring to get revenge. The military leaders of the Saxons would flee, and Charlemagne would enslave more members of the civilian population, re-establish the small garrison, and withdraw for the winter. The Saxon leaders would return, wipe out the garrison again, and so on. This has often been chalked up to the uh, inefficiencies of the medieval military machines, or to the skill of the Saxons who are fighting a noble guerrilla war. It seems increasingly likely to me that Charlemagne would just go into Saxony hoovering up human plunder when he had no other better targets. As we have seen in this show, however, this situation could not last forever. With Charlemagne's death, the pace of campaigning slowed down, and internal political troubles increased. Without external plunder, the resulting civil wars of Charlemagne's grandsons would, at best, not have provided plunder for the compensation of the soldiers, something which by itself would have weakened the empire politically and militarily. But given the evidence we have of merchants continuing to follow these armies around, combined with explicit statements in the Chronicles, it's more likely that the soldiers were allowed to plunder, which is to say enslave their own civilian populations uh, in areas of battle, which further weakened the empire, given that it undermined the economic foundations of it. In any case, and despite this questionable practice, these new civil wars still undoubtedly failed to produce the bounties of earlier conflicts, given that they were never as successful. This must have had an impact at the major slave trading centers of the empire, especially in the north. With supplies dropping, the cost of slaves at the familiar ports must have risen, even as the empire began to destabilize politically. We can't know how the Nordic merchants who had been the Franks' major trading partners and who had become accustomed to the resulting profits, we can't know how they reacted on an individual level. But I consider it unlikely to be a coincidence that the same people soon thereafter began to attack Frankish ports. They were wealthy enough to recruit crews, well-armed enough with Frankish swords to be dangerous, and had the moral flexibility that we might expect from a bunch of slave traders. However the Vikings reacted, in retrospect, no element of this economic growth was sustainable. Building an economy on the profits of the slave trade required a constant state of successful warfare forever. This simply is unrealistic, and the empire inevitably reached a point beyond which it was impossible to expand. Cultural factors also came into play as the Slavic areas of Eastern Europe began to Christianize. While the enslavement of Christians for sale in North Africa would continue for the rest of the Middle Ages, it was technically illegal, something which would tend to limit the ability of a ruler to use unapologetic mass enslavement as a source of plunder in a Christian area. The increasingly small scale of warfare in the Middle Ages after the political fragmentation of the Frankish Empire likely also played a role in limiting slave supplies. So we can expect, and indeed we find, evidence of some kind of market correction during the 900s. So let, let me just bring this all together. The limits of expansion and the Christianization of the Slavs limited the supplies of slaves. The Frankish political system began fracturing, partly as a result. Political weakness and rising unmet demand likely led to the increasingly destructive raids of the northern shore by the Vikings and the southern shore by the Saracens, who now began taking slaves without paying for them. Finally, the Magyar invasion seemed to have been extremely destructive to the European economy as material infrastructure was destroyed, political leaders were killed, and the agrarian labor force was stolen from the manors and sent east. All that said, this period of collapse was not as devastating economically as it undoubtedly was politically or personally for those caught up in the chaos. 
Certainly, evidence of economic activity in this period is much more lively than it was in the 700s. In the Western Mediterranean and in the Baltic, it seems that the type of warfare being waged served as a kind of economic connection by other means. Even as the Saracen pirates prowled the Italian shore looking for victims, they worked with onshore slaving gangs, who may well have been some kind of local group. It turns out that the Viking pirates followed similar patterns, often working with ethnic minority groups such as the Bretons and the Welsh. Commercial contacts, despite the presence of purported military hostility, seem to have quietly transitioned to more mundane contacts as the chaos subsided. As Europe entered the year 1000, trading links between the British Isles, the area around the mouth of the Rhine, and the Baltic Sea continued to exist. This was the case despite the fact that the slave trading routes along the Volga would ultimately be cut by invading steppe tribes. These commercial contacts thus came to focus on high-weight, low-value items like lumber and hides for the domestic market in mainland Europe, goods which could easily be shipped up the many rivers of the European continent. The shipping of these goods up these rivers was in turn facilitated by the fact that, despite the ultimate fracturing of the Carolingian Empire, hard military frontiers of the kind we saw in the Merovingian kingdoms did not return. Every knight between Calais and Paris might have wanted their cut and may have assessed a toll, but the Duke of Normandy does not seem to have generally cut off trade, despite decades of warfare with the kings in Paris. And as was the case with pirates last episode, complaints about toll collections are evidence for the existence of trade, not its destruction. Down in the south, the newly wealthy and powerful cities of the Adriatic and southern Italy continued trading with North Africa and, gradually, with the assistance of the Eastern Roman navy, eventually pushed the slave traders away from their shores. One wonders if the Italian cities were more motivated by eliminating competition than by their professed goal of saving Christianity, but in any case, the Christianization of Slavic Europe, the consolidation of the post-Carolingian social order, and the decline of domestic slavery as such all combined to reduce the ability of Europe to produce large numbers of slaves for the caliphate. At the same time, the caliphate had also begun to fall apart politically, which may have reduced demand. And so it was that other commodities were found that were of interest to the markets to the south and west. Woolen garments began to rise in importance, as did silver coming in increasing quantity out of mines in Central Europe and the Nordic countries. Craft production of finished goods was incentivized even as Venetian merchants began to play a larger and larger role in the commercial life of the Eastern Roman Empire, where they ultimately diversified their portfolio of products with a focus on the luxury market. In the last three episodes, we covered a lot of ground, so a recap is even more necessary than usual. In the first episode, we saw how the late Roman economy had become reliant on slavery and government-subsidized transportation systems. The collapse of the empire reduced most shipping in the Mediterranean to coastal tramping. In the second episode, we discussed the rise of the manor from an economic perspective, and saw how each manor was clearly intended to function as a part of a larger economy. We also saw how economic horizons of that time limited the trade in high-weight, low-value goods to very small areas due to the presence of numerous active military frontiers. In today's episode, we elaborated on those frontiers and saw how merchants in Venice, Amalfi, and the Northern Arct helped to penetrate them. This revival of long-distance commerce coincided with the collapse of those military frontiers. 
In Northern Europe, this was because Charlemagne united the Frankish kingdoms into a massive empire and then systematically destroyed all regional barriers to trade. In the Western Mediterranean, the military frontiers collapsed with all semblance of central authority, leading to an extremely violent free-for-all in which goods moved regardless of supposed confessional, cultural, or political allegiances. But as we closed in on the end of the episode, we saw how the key commodity that Europeans were trading was other Europeans. From Charlemagne's plundering of the Saxons and the Slavs, who were exported to Venice, to the cutthroat local feuds of southern Italy, everyone was desperate to enslave their neighbors and send them to the glittering markets of the south. Ultimately, this dark alliance of military success and economic incentive was unsustainable, and the very merchants who had been the Franks' trading partners became the pirates who dragged them into eastern slavery. This final spasm of violent economic acquisition gradually cooled as the wider macroeconomic incentives changed and as the local political situation stabilized. The military frontiers were gone, but so were the incentives that had created the slave trading economy in the first place. Europe would spend the next several centuries focusing on domestic production and consumption, with only a small part of their economy focused on luxury imports and exports. This growth would be steady, with interruptions caused by the odd plague or war, up until the 1400s. And yet, slavery in the Mediterranean never fully went away. People across Europe continued to be enslaved through debt, criminal prosecution, and occasionally through war. There were always unscrupulous merchants who found ways to get such unfortunate souls down to Italy, where markets remained open if reduced in size. Scattered mentions continued down the centuries of unscrupulous captains selling passengers, soldiers selling heretics captured in crusades, or pirates selling their unfortunate victims into the social death of slavery in the powerful economies to the south. So it was that this awful seed was preserved within the legal and social structure of the European economy, waiting for the right conditions to reemerge in the early modern period. Well, that's it for today, everyone. Next month, I will finally be beginning to wrap up my discussion of the medieval class system as I turn my attention to life in cities in the Middle Ages. It's been a long time coming, but for what I hope will eventually be obvious reasons, I had to get the economy out of the way before putting this subject to bed. I think it will be a good time, so be sure to tune in next time for a slightly less depressing episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.